Okay, everyone, we're ready to start our uh, second presentation this morning. I hope you enjoyed the first one. I, I enjoyed it. I loved that the, the uh, suggestion of getting your guardian, your children's guardian angels involved uh, was a new one. I hadn't heard that or thought of that either. So definitely something I'm going to start taking into account when uh, when they get a little rambunctious and and whatnot. So um, so again, I invite Mike Aquilina to come on up. I'd like to go to our mother again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. <clears throat> Having a hard time adjusting this. This is revenge for messing with Tom before. Okay, there we go. Well, St. Joseph is the one person the church calls the worker. It's an unusual title. It's kind of generic, the worker. The Greek word for Joseph's job was tekton. And again, it's a generic word for a craftsman or a builder. Somebody who worked with their hands. So his work was not biblical interpretation or preaching or teaching or philosophy or theology. He wasn't a priest like Mary's kinsman, Zechariah. He was a tekton. And that meant he was a skilled laborer. And obviously... He was known for his work because he was called the Tecton. Though, Joseph had, though God had chosen Joseph for the greatest mission ever, as I said, he was just an ordinary Joe. He lived in good times for men of his trades. His region was undergoing a building boom, probably the biggest building boom in ancient history. Herod the Great ruled the Holy Land for more than 30 years. And more than any other king in antiquity, he was known for his architectural skill. You can look it up. He still holds world records for some of the things that he raised in the Holy Land during his reign. He designed the great boulevard in Antioch. It was the first street in history with street lamps. And it was imitated by every major city in the world for centuries afterward. It was the model. He commanded the construction of harbors and amphitheaters, marketplaces and racetracks and public baths. This was a show of his power. It was a show of his might. It was intended to in inspire awe in his people, putting up these great buildings, these great monuments. And under the rule of Herod, the nation prospered economically. It was a good thing to be the friend of the Romans. And the kings and the aristocrats were eager to raise up signs of their prosperity. They wanted grandiose man mansions and monuments. They wanted to be remembered and loved for their ostentatious wealth. So builders and carpenters and stoneworkers were in great demand. All of these, each of them, can be described as tecton. From childhood onward, Joseph probably worked with crews of men on these projects. They commuted together to the work sites by walking, sometimes perhaps for miles. Their work was demanding, 
on both muscle and mind. We think about what a carpenter or a construction crew did back then. There, were, there, was, there was no machinery, right? So every board you sawed, you sawed by hand. You measured everything out by hand. It had to be exact. All of the machinery, the cranes, were constructed from wood. And they had to be constructed before the job began. And so this was part of every construction project. You needed a lot of people to do this. These were good times for a tecton. Their work was demanding, as I said, on both the muscle and the mind. And their work sites were probably noisy. Joseph's co-workers were probably no more refined than folks you and I have worked with. They could be rough. But it was in the midst of all that racket that Joseph cultivated interior silence and the habit of prayer, even with all that noise going on, even surrounded by this rough crew. The scriptures present him as a silent man. As I said in my first talk, St. Joseph utters not a single word on the record, and nowhere in the New Testament do we find any human talking to St. Joseph, only angels. And the title worker draws further attention to his silence. Again, we remember many other saints for what they said. But St. Joseph, we remember for shutting up and getting things done. We remember him for his work. In all of human history, he's the one best known as the worker. And with his work, he played a key role in human history. He was present at the turning point in the drama of salvation, and he was not only an eyewitness, but an active participant. We're here today because we want to read the signs of his life and consider their significance for our own lives. In the first talk, we did that with his angels, his devotion, and now we'll do it with his work. In the gospel, Joseph's identity is bound up with his relationships and his labor. He's the son of Jacob. He's the husband of Mary. He's the earthly father of Jesus. He's the companion of angels. He's a son, a husband, a father, and he's a tecton. An ancient tradition tells us more specifically that his craft was carpentry, a trade in which he was apprenticed, in which he was apprenticed in his childhood, and which in time he apprenticed his own son Jesus. When people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, they asked, Isn't this the carpenter's son? And all of this is fitting. Spiritual writers since at least the fourth century have pointed out that Jesus' earthly father shared two titles with his heavenly father. Both Joseph and God are called father. Mary refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. And both are called craftsmen. Both Joseph and God are fathers and both are builders. If you're a carpenter or a builder, that should please you. But no matter what you and I do, we're all called to work. It's part of our basic human vocation. It's part of our identity. St. Joseph knew this not because of an angel's message, but because he knew the Bible. Some years ago, our Holy Father, Pope Francis, spoke of the meaning of human labor. And he drew his teaching, again, from the first pages of the Bible, from the book of Genesis. He said, 
It's clear from the very first pages of the Bible that work is an essential part of human dignity. There we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Man is presented as a laborer who works the earth, harnesses the forces of nature, and produces the bread of anxious toil, in addition to cultivating his own gifts and talents. Pope Francis' statement takes us back to the beginning, to the story of Adam and Eve, and that's a story that St. Joseph knew well, just as well as you and I know it. He knew it from the liturgy in the synagogue and the temple, and he allowed it to shape his life and his approach to his craft. And because he did this, he became not only a builder of benches and tables, St. Joseph became a builder of our world. Let's take a moment and focus once more on that all-important creation story, the story that taught us about the primacy of angels in the, in, in the, in the creation. Now let's consider the earth and its most important inhabitants, us. In those first pages of the Bible, we learn that man was made in God's image. Next, we learn that he was made to work, and it makes sense because the creation story shows God at work making things out of nothing. One day he makes, he makes the earth, separates it from the waters. Next day he's, he's creating the lights in the sky. And he made man to have dominion in his image, to work, to have dominion over the creatures of the earth and sea and sky. Man was to fill the earth and subdue it. And all of that is work. This is what we do in small ways when we do our daily work. In the following chapter, we learn also that the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Again, that's work, and it's what man was supposed to do in the beginning. Human beings were created in God's image with work as an elemental part of their nature. All of this happened before there was any talk of testing or disobedience, before there was any talk of an original sin. You know, sometimes people talk as if work were punishment for the original sin, punishment for the fall, but that's not true. Adam was created in order to work. In the earthly paradise, long before there was sin, there was work, and work was seen as something good, everything in those initial days, was good. God pronounced them good. And it was more than good. Work in the beginning was holy. We see this in the way the story is told. Adam is commanded to till the garden and keep it. Some translations say he must work it and guard it. The original Hebrew verbs are abodah and shamar which are elsewhere in the Old Testament, used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple, Abodah and Shamar. It's what they did. They tended the altar and they guarded it from profanation. So with his creation, Adam was given a task and that task was sacred. It was priestly. Well, in biblical religion, the work of any priest any priest, is to offer sacrifice. That's what Melchizedek did. It's what Aaron did. 
It's what Zechariah did. They slaughtered animals and they placed them on the altar. But what was the stuff of Adam's sacrifice? What was he offering when there was no altar upon the earth? It seems that the entirety of the earth was supposed to be his offering. And his labor was supposed to be an act of sacrifice. As God equipped Adam for the task of subduing the earth, he was also ordaining him for sacrifice, for priestly service on the earth. And that moment, I believe, is the true big bang in any biblical and Christian understanding of work. The event remains like background radiation through all the rest of history, informing the way labor and laborers are portrayed in the religion of Israel and how they're protected and regulated in Israel's law and how they're defended by the prophets again and again. The background radiation is evident also in the terminology used for the priestly office. We see in the book of Exodus that it's described simply as service. What the priest does is service. We still call our liturgies a, a, a religious service, right? What we forget, though, is that is the very same term used in the book of Exodus to describe the slavery of the, of the Israelites in Egypt, the slave labor that they were doing for Pharaoh. It was service. This implies that there's an ordinary quality to the tasks of priests. Sacrifice was their job, just like writing is my job. But it also suggests that there was something sacred about the tasks of ordinary work, of brickmakers and bricklayers and craftsmen and builders. We were made for work, and God intended our work to be holy. That doesn't mean it will be easy, because after Adam's sin, God confronted him with the consequences of his actions, and most of them would affect his work. There was punishment involved. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, God said. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So we see the arduous character of work after the fall. But the work itself continues to be good. It continues to be holy. It continues to be sacrificial. And we need to note that very carefully, that the work itself is not a punishment for sin nor is it a consequence of sin. Because of our sin, it's burdensome to us. It can be troublesome and frustrating. But again, from the beginning, it's good, it's holy, it's our sacrifice as human beings. And so it was in the life of St. Joseph and in the life of Jesus. St. Paul calls Jesus the new Adam coming into a new creation. Well, in his hidden life, he reconsecrated labor as he apprenticed himself to St. Joseph in the workshop. Once again, he made work perfect, holy, beautiful. In time, Jesus took up the work of craftsmen, draftsmen, builders, teachers, doctors, and he restored it all to its original goodness, lifting it up to his Father in heaven. 
Later in life, he sailed with fishermen, shared their work, and he sanctified their trade. At the wedding feast of Cana, he even came to the assistance of the bartenders. There he was, working with them, sanctifying their trade. In all of the work he took up, at every stage of his life, he established a model for that kind of work. In every instance, he earned the title that went along with his trade. When he was a carpenter, people called him the carpenter, as if it was his name. Later on, when he was an itinerant teacher, he labored to exhaustion. He traveled far and wide without a place to lay his head. And again, he earned the title that went with his trade. People called him the rabbi, the teacher, as if it was his name, as if he exemplified that job done at peak performance. It was his identity. Since Jesus worked to earn those titles, the early Christians gloried in them. They delighted when they shared in the work that Jesus had done with his hands. So you can see the symbols of all trades inscribed along with the names of Christians through the burial chambers of the catacombs. How many people have been to the catacombs in Rome? Do you see some of those inscriptions where it'll show the name of a person along with the symbol of the trade? So there will be a saw for a carpenter, you know, or, or you know, there will be medical instruments for a doctor, or it will say the name of the trade. Such hard work was not a burden, nor was it shameful. It was what God did throughout his life on earth. Well, where did Jesus learn his, this approach to work? He learned it from his heavenly father, and he learned it from his earthly father, St. Joseph. He learned it from his mother, who surely inspired his parables about industrious women. And Jesus' parents, as I said, learned their work ethic from the book of Genesis. It was an approach that was unique in the ancient world. This view of work as something positive, honorable, and holy did not come naturally in that world. It especially did not come naturally to non-Jews. In fact, the earliest Christians were mocked because they approached their work the way Joseph and Jesus did. It was so different, it was scorned. In the early days of the church, a famous intellectual named Celsus launched a vigorous attack against Christianity. He was world famous. He wrote textbooks on medicine and agriculture in all the major fields of his day. And he decided that he was going to take on Christianity. And he wrote a volume against Christianity. This is in the 100s. And he says in there, he's mocking in the way he treats our faith. He says, this religion can't be true. Why? Because it was made up of shoemakers, cleaners, weavers, and other common laborers. And its God, get this, was a carpenter. His mother spun cloth. And their God's greatest spokesman, Paul of Tarsus, was a tent maker. How could a religion made up of such lowly people be anything but laughable? Celsus believed what every gentleman 
of the Greco-Roman world believed that it was gross and ignoble to do useful work with our hands. The French social historian Paul Vane speaks of the ancients' contempt for labor, their undisguised scorn for those who work with their hands, their exaltation of leisure as the only life worthy of a man. And that's indeed the constant message you find in classical literature. Socrates himself said that citizens should come only from the leisured classes and in fact should be prohibited to exercise any mechanical craft at all. It would be unseemly. Aristotle wrote that no one who leads the life of a worker or laborer can practice virtue. Let that sink in. No one who leads the life of a worker or laborer can practice virtue. That's Aristotle. Elsewhere, Aristotle said, there are labors with which a free person cannot be occupied without degrading himself. Such are those which particularly require bodily strength. But for these labors, nature has created a special class of men. These special beings are those whom we subjugate in order that they may take bodily labor in our stead under the names of slaves or mercenaries. So strong, poor men are meant to be subjugated. They're born to be slaves, said Aristotle. And again, Aristotle is hardly alone in this. To the most refined men of the Greco-Roman world, leisure was a virtue and work was its opposite. Work was a vice. Yet Jews and Christians never looked at work that way. The ancient rabbis sound a different note altogether when they spoke about work. We read in the Talmud that a man has a duty to teach his son a trade. Anyone who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. And elsewhere they said, seven years lasted the famine, but it came not to the, craftsman, to the craftsman's door because he knew how to live in hard times. He knew how to work with these hands. Both Jews and Christians saw great dignity in workers and their works. Biblical religion taught a certain admiration for the virtues that go with labor, like industriousness. And so the Christian religion was extremely attractive to people who worked with their hands. Celsus was right about one thing. The churches in the first and second centuries were full of laborers. Laborers who worshipped a laborer and whose scriptures preserved not the arguments of philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle, but the stories of people who got work done. Abel was a herdsman. Noah was a sailor. Jacob leaned into a plow into a plow for years after year, years upon years. Joseph was a carpenter. Peter and Andrew and James and John were fishermen. Paul made an installed tents and canopies. These men got dirty and sweaty every day. They were not aristocrats. And so the tradition-minded Greeks and Romans could dismiss them as ignoble. The idea that ordinary labor had dignity 
the idea that ordinary work could be something divine because Jesus did it. This set Christians apart from their neighbors. It was one of those crazy Christian ideas that scandalized the pagan world. It was like the idea of a crucified God or coming to eat God at Mass. These ideas seemed crazy, and so the pagans mocked them. They mocked us for believing such nonsense. But Christians seemed to revel in every insult. The church fathers didn't hesitate to portray Jesus working at various trades. Wherever you were working, they seemed to say, Jesus was working with you. Indeed, he was working within you and through you. And everyone recognized this as a radical idea. The gods of antiquity, they were projections of the upper classes. And the Greek and Roman myths were narratives of the mischief of a leisured life. The awful mistakes of people who have endless money and too much time on their hands. The pagan mystery cults were open almost exclusively to the upper classes. You needed time and money to rehearse those doctrines and undergo those rituals. But the Christian God was a carpenter whose father in heaven was not drinking and womanizing the way Zeus and Hera did, but always toiling away. Jesus told his opponents, my father is working still and I am working. The lesson was not lost on the early Christians. Clement of Alexandria, writing around the year 190, reminded new converts that there was no need for them to quit their jobs. Keep working. Tend to your farming if you're a farmer, but know God while you labor in the fields. Sail if navigation is your profession, but invoke always the celestial pilot. Was it in a military career that the knowledge of God first came to you? Well then, obey the commander who orders you to do just things. And such preaching was effective. It worked. And it converted people in every walk of life. Clement's African contemporary, Tertullian of Carthage, boasted of the church's explosive growth. He says, we emerged just yesterday and we have filled every place among you. He's saying this to the pagans. We filled your cities, your islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. The new Christian faith led the faithful not to abandon their duties, but to embrace them and to excel them with the professional excellence that was worthy of God. It didn't make them good at the jobs they did, but it made them want to do their best for God's sake because they were putting it on the altar. And this distinguished Christianity from other world religions. By the time of Clement and Tertullian, we're not far into Christian history. And already we see the effects of a revolution. In the world, Christians were as omnipresent as God. And like God, they were working still. 
Their work was holy. The early Christians knew this. They learned it from Jesus and from St. Joseph. And we Christians today do not hesitate to put our work on the altar. The bread and wine there, that are there for consecration are the work of human hands. That's what we call them in the liturgy. And as such, they represent, they stand in for all the work we do all day, every day. I'm not making this up. This is the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. The Council Fathers proclaimed that all of the laity's ordinary work is placed on the altar with the bread and wine of the sacrifice at the offertory. This is the passage. For all their works, prayers, and apostolic endeavors, their ordinary married and family life, their daily occupations, their physical and mental relaxation, if carried out in the spirit, and even the hardships of life, if patiently borne, all these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Together with the offering of the Lord's body, they are most fittingly offered in the celebration of the Eucharist. Thus, as those, who every, as those everywhere who adore in holy activity, the laity consecrate the world itself to God. Because you come to Mass... You bring all your work with you. It's placed on the altar, and it's consecrated to God. Work is what we're made for. God wanted us to find fulfillment by working. That's what we learn when we contemplate the life of St. Joseph the worker. You and I have been redeemed to work with divinized hands. When we work like St. Joseph... We co-create with God. We perform our labors with a touch that's more powerful than the touch of King Midas. Everything King Midas touched turned to gold. Everything we touch turns to glory. It's not that we repair dishwashers better or raise better crops or write more beautiful poetry than pagans do. But it means that we place everything that we have upon the altar. And that changes everything. What's placed on the altar is changed because it's sanctified. We place bread and wine on the altar and it's changed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everything that's placed on the altar is sanctified. It's made holy. It changes the meaning of our work on the altar and on the altar of the cross even failure is transubstantiated into triumph and this is so important for us to learn because God is not impressed by our resume I'm sure there are people here in this church right now who will have the most amazing obituaries when they die and God will not be impressed by those obituaries as I am. Mother Teresa said repeatedly that what God wants from us is not success. What God wants from us is faithfulness. Knowing that can and should transform the value of everything that happens while we're on the job. If we experience success 
That's great. Thanks be to God. Glory be to God. But if we get laid off, if we get fired, if we get demoted, if we get humiliated, well, we're ready for that too. We may feel the pain of it, but we can feel it and offer it the way Christ felt and offered his pain on the cross. Because that was history's greatest victory, even though nobody saw it as such at the time. In doing this, in working this way, we work with the power of Christ, always snatching a win from the jaws of a loss. Well, Jesus learned about work from his father, and I learned about work from mine, so I want to say a word about that. My earliest memories are of my pop coming home from work. Earliest things I remember from my life. I was his late-in-life baby. He and mom were both 47 years old when I was born. I'm the youngest of seven children. So in those memories, I'm around three, and he's around 50. My dad was a welder, and he worked on heavy machinery for a mining operation. And he worked long hours at his job, and sometimes he had to travel to distant sites. And I don't know if he enjoyed his work. It's what he did for all of his adult life, but he never talked about welding in rapturous terms. He never talked about a blowtorch with any kind of affection. Now, maybe he did enjoy it, and he just didn't talk about it. He was kind of silent, like St. Joseph. But I think he enjoyed taking care of me and my mom and my siblings. And for that reason, he loved his work. When he picked up his tools, he was loving me, his little boy, his late-in-life baby, who really shook up his life. And he was loving my brothers and sisters. Sometimes he came home late, and usually he came home exhausted. And, um, and I'll bet there's nothing he wanted more than to collapse b- beneath the newspaper and have a good nap. And nobody in the little town of Pittston, Pennsylvania, deserved a nap better than this man. But he didn't do that. I remember vividly what he did. As soon as he walked in the door every day, he would go into the kitchen and he would scrub the grime of motor oil and anthracite coal off his hands and his arms. Took him a while, and then he'd go into the living room and he'd join in whatever game I happened to be playing. I remember the anticipation of, every, of this every day when I was three years old. This was the big thing in my day. And we had a routine that was consistent from day to day. If I was playing with Tonka trucks at the time, we pushed the Tonka truck back and forth. If I was playing with Lincoln logs at the time, we built with Lincoln logs. We took our turns. We made our plans. And at a certain point every day, at a certain point in the game, I would look over and I would see my father fast asleep on the ground with his arms outstretched. And that's my earliest memory 
It's of a man who worked and whose particular fragrance was coal dust and motor oil. It's an image of a man whose work was sacrificial and loving and who gave and who gave and who kept on giving till he had nothing left to give. And when he had nothing left, he fell into the form of our God, whom I knew very well, even at age three, from the Mass. In our churches, Jesus is held up, cruciform, before our astonished gaze. There was my father, cruciform, on the floor, crashed out. And even now, some 50 years later, 55 years later, whenever I read Jesus' words about laying down one's life, it's a vivid image for me. It's my father in his work clothes, out cold on the floor of our little apartment on 150 South Main Street in Pittston, Pennsylvania. And that image is for me a holy icon of Jesus Christ. The laborer, still scorned by the world, who, and yet who knows happiness and fulfillment because he gives himself entirely in love and he holds nothing back. Jesus worked with his hands and so he bestowed the supreme dignity on human labor. From Jesus' life we encounter the work of St. Joseph, which was a blessing to his family and by extension to all the human family. For Christians who know union with Christ, Labor is not merely good. It's holy. It's an imitation of Jesus and a sharing with God in the act of creation. What St. Joseph gave us is far more than a work ethic. It's a profound conversion of life. It asks us to see everything differently and to be grateful even for our failures to be grateful even for our humiliations, to see in them the glory of God, just as we see it on the cross. We've been created for this. We've been called for this. We've been ordained for this kind of priesthood when we were baptized. We're employed for nothing less than this purpose. I thank you for giving me the privilege of working this way and spending the day with you Let's give glory to God for his saints and for the privilege we have of being co-workers with St. Joseph and with Almighty God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Do you want me to answer questions? If you have questions, I'm happy to answer them about the angels, about our work, about St. Joseph. If not, I'm happy to sell you a book. <laughs> yes, Vic. Vic. Yes. Yes. Well, so the question is whether we should name our angels 
uh, which is which is custom some people have observed down the centuries. Um, and I'll say that uh, um, the, the the Vatican has strongly discouraged that practice. Okay, in uh, 2001, uh, there there came out a um, uh, like a handbook on on popular devotion and on the liturgy, and uh, and. It was put out by the Congregation for Divine Worship. And in the section on devotion to the angels, it strongly discourages us um, from the practice of naming our angels. It doesn't condemn the practice. So if you've done this, you know, don't feel like it's, it's something terrible that you've done. But it discourages it. And I remember at the time, back in 2001, and I wish I could, I, I wish I could remember where I saw this, but I saw a, a question and answer session just like this with Cardinal Arinze, who was at that time head of the, the Congregation for Divine Worship, and someone asked him about this passage, and he said two things about it. One, he said, and I'll never forget this, he had that beautiful accent, but he said, the angels are not our pets. The angels are not our pets. We are not superior to them in the way that we have the sacred task of giving them names. Because in the Bible, that's a sacred task. It was given to certain people, and it was often a renaming is reserved for God. We, have, we know the, the names of three angels because they're revealed in sacred scripture. We know those with certainty. You know, saints have mentioned the names of other angels, but, um, uh, but that, that was one of the reasons he gave. gave. The, the other reason, he said, is because we open ourselves to the danger of, um, of, uh, of attracting occult forces because there are fallen angels who want to mess with us and they will use any opportunity they have. So I've never named my, my guardian angel. I didn't know about the custom when I started going to my guardian angel. My mother didn't do that, so I didn't follow her in that. Um, but really the way I greet my guardian angel is kind of the way I can greet my wife. Uh, you know, sometimes when I walk into a room and say one of the kids is having a meltdown or whatever, and you kind of look at your wife and you kind of wink or raise your eyebrow, that kind of communication is what I have with my angel. But what my confessor advised me all those years ago was to greet the guardian angel of everyone you meet. And I try to do that. I've tried to do that since he, said, he told me that. Because you don't know what are the important encounters in your life when they're beginning. You only know in retrospect. Sometimes you only know 30 years after the fact that that encounter was really important. So greet the guardian angels every time you encounter a new person, just with a high, you know, silently in your heart. But do that to make the most out of every encounter. The angels are with us all the time. They want to be involved in our lives. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, wait. In the back. You know, sometimes we have a sense of mission in our work, you know, and, uh, and I do. Uh, sometimes my work seems like drudgery, but most of the time I know that about what I do. But I haven't always been working in this field. I worked in the tech field um, for eight years. I worked in advertising for three years. And on a lot of those days, the question arose in my mind, what is the meaning of what I'm doing? <laughs> right? Why am I here? <laughs> what, is, what is the ultimate value of all of this? Well, if we are priests at an altar, we know the value of what's in front of us. 
The value is the glory that's given to it by God in the sacrifice. So, my typewriter, my typewriter, listen to me, I started on a typewriter, uh, but my, my, my computer keyboard, my laptop, is a holy altar. That's the way I look at it. It's a holy altar on which I offer sacrifice day after day after day. The ironing board, the diaper changing table, the lawn you're mowing, all of these things are holy altars you're standing over just as Father stands at this altar and presides over the liturgy with his arms outstretched. We have been baptized into the common priesthood. We have been baptized into the ministry of sacrifice. And the stuff of our sacrifice is the stuff of Adam's sacrifice. It's all the earth, and it's the work we do on the earth. Yes? Yes? Reconcile that. I have to be careful with this because um, when, um, when I was in third grade, my best friend was, was killed. And um, it was, it was, uh, he, was he, he did what kids, you're always worried they're going to do. He darted out from behind a car and he was, he was hit. And uh, I still feel this rage that wells up inside me after all these years, 50 years. That's crazy, but I, but I do. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, is this some kind of angelic malfunction? Who's responsible for this, right? What we have to keep in mind is that our angel's job is not to keep us from suffering. It's not to keep us from death. All of us are going to suffer. And I hope it doesn't come as news, but all of us are going to die too. The angel is not responsible for that. The angel's job is to get us to heaven, to make sure that whatever we suffer gets us there, right? Here's the hard truth. That suffering and sorrow are the ordinary path to holiness. They're not the best path. They're not the highest path. But they're the most common path taken. Why? Because, you know what, in my prayer, I don't always remember to praise God. In my prayer, I don't always remember to thank God. But I'm really, really, really good at the prayer of gimme, gimme, gimme. This is what I want. I want it so badly. You understand this, right? This is how I bargain with God. I remember reading the lives of the saints when I was a kid and thinking, ah, oh, that they're exaggerated. These, these stories about the saints staying up all night, praying all night. I said, that's an exaggeration. Eh, maybe they stayed up late, you know, not all night, for days and days. And then it happens. Either you encounter some scare, the test comes back from the lab, or even worse than that, one of your kids gets the scare or your grandkids and then you learn that you can pass your night in prayer and it goes by in three minutes and you never lack something to say to our Lord. Sorrow is the ordinary path to holiness and glory. 
The letter to the Hebrews said that our Lord learned through suffering. God himself learned through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. That's our model. We're going to know sorrow. Our children are going to know sorrow. Our grandchildren are going to know sorrow. We want to know that we're all going to be together in glory one day. That's the way I look at it. It's not an angelic malfunction. It's not an angelic failure. It's, it's, it's their, their role in God's plan. It's hard. I don't mean to say it's easy. As I said, 50 years later, I still feel that surge from a sorrow when I was in third grade. Yes? St. John Chrysostom believed that the star of Bethlehem was an angel because it did not behave like a star. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> zipping around like that. It, it behaved like an angel. Yeah, so, so yeah, so, so, so some scholars do believe it was an angel. I believe it was an angel. And in any event, I believe that angels control the movements of the stars. That's what we see in the book of Revelation and the winds. That's part of nature. so much.